When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives, the embarrassments which have prevailed in our foreign relations and so much employed the deliberations of Congress make it a primary duty in meeting you to communicate whatever may have occurred in that branch of our national affairs. The act of the last session of Congress concerning the commercial intercourse between the United States and Great Britain and France and their dependencies, having invited in a new form a termination of their edicts against our neutral commerce, copies of the act were immediately forwarded to our ministers at London and Paris, with a view that its object might be within the early attention of the French and British governments. By the communication received through our minister at Paris, It appeared that knowledge of the act by the French government was followed by a declaration that the Berlin and Milan decrees were revoked and would cease to have effect on the first day of November ensuing. It would have well accorded with the conciliatory views indicated by this proceeding on the part of France to have extended them to all the grounds of just complaint which now remain unadjusted with the United States. This expectation has not been fulfilled. From the British government, no communication on the subject of the act has been received. James Madison, Second Annual Message to Congress, December 5th, 1810. Picking up from our last episode, Macon's Bill Number 2 and its carrot-and-stick approach had seemingly gotten the French to agree to at least the barest of minimums of American demands. And now, the ball was in the court of the British government to determine whether they were willing to concede some of the diplomatic talking points related to American trade and impressment or would rather face the consequences of non-importation being reimposed. As with all things with French Emperor Napoleon, there was a scheme at play, and you can be sure that it wasn't to the benefit of President Madison or his administration. Before I get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. As this episode is being recorded in the holiday season in the latter part of 2022, I know that so many others are busy trying to get things wrapped up before the end of the year or preparing to visit or host loved ones are planning opportunities to rest and recharge. As such, I turn to my reliable better half who has supported this podcast even before the launch of the first episode and continues to support my efforts each and every day. Je t'aime mon cher, avec tout mon cœur. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Last episode saw the U.S. Minister to France, John Armstrong, send word of the mention from the French Foreign Minister, Jean-Baptiste de Nompère de Champagny, Duc de Cadour, of a possible repeal of French decrees prohibitive of American trade per the conditions of Macon's Bill No. 2. Armstrong also shared his concerns that this offer may not be completely on the up and up and should be treated with caution. Unfortunately, Word of the Cador letter with the offer reached Washington, D.C. before Armstrong's report, and President Madison decided to gamble on a deal ultimately being to the benefit of both nations. Put a pen in that, dear listener. We'll come back to it. Meanwhile, as we discussed last episode, with British King George III relapsing into an episode of mental and emotional instability, the Ministry of Prime Minister Spencer Percival had more than enough to concern itself with along with the prolonged war with France, that relations with the United States were low on the priority list. Meanwhile, the Madison administration's list of concerns would get a new item added to it as word reached Washington of an uprising of enslaved individuals in the Orleans Territory in January 1811. Before we follow these threads, though, I hope you'll indulge me as we get caught up on a couple of things that have been happening in Washington, D.C., starting with the person delivering the president's second annual message to Congress in early December 1810. As you may recall from episode 4.7, the delivery of Madison's first annual message to Congress the year prior had not gone so well. The private secretary to the president, Isaac Coles, ended up assaulting a congressman and was forced to resign his post. To replace him, Madison had chosen Isaac's brother, Edward Coles. Now, this may seem a bit too close to home to help the administration get past the scandal, especially considering that the Coles brothers were cousins of First Lady Dolly Madison, but the Coles family was a well-respected Virginia planter family, and Edward Coles was of a different temperament than his brother Isaac, something that congressional members who were initially wary of the new private secretary quickly realized and acknowledged. Indeed, after his arrival in Washington, D.C. in mid-January 1810, Edward Coles threw himself into his work at the president's house. As described by historian Suzanne Cooper Guasco, quite quickly upon assuming the post, quote, he had already begun performing the whole circle of duties required of his position. He received, cataloged, and organized the president's correspondence and was responsible for delivering all the communications between the president and Congress. Occasionally, he carried collections of documents or informal notes to particular members of the legislature. More often than not, he delivered official messages from the president that he then read before Congress. Additionally, he frequently presided as master of ceremonies at official and informal dinners. Mrs. Madison always sat at the head of the table, Edward Coles at the foot, and the president took some convenient seat in between. In this way, Coles and Dolly Madison controlled the flow of the conversation and occasionally deferred to the president, who strategically selected a seat nearest those with whom he needed to discuss important matters. This trusted member of the president's official family, however, almost turned down the post. In February 1808, at the death of his father, Edward had inherited, quote, a 782-acre plantation called Rockfish Farm and as many as 20 slaves. 
The problem with this for Edward was that he was against the institution of slavery and had no desire to enslave anyone. By December 1809, he had come up with a plan to take the enslaved people that he had inherited and move to the Old Northwest where slavery was illegal, and thus they would get their freedom and Edward would be firmly on a life path, quote, as a frontier landholder free of slavery. He had even put his farm up for sale. Then, the letter from Madison came, asking him to serve as his private secretary. Coles knew that if he accepted this offer from the president, he would have to defer his plans and instead head to Washington while the enslaved individuals would remain at the farm in Virginia. Coles had written a letter declining Madison's offer and was on the way to the post office to mail it when he came upon his friend, James Monroe. As noted by Guasco, quote, the two men had formed a close friendship during the year and a half after the young Virginian returned home when his father fell ill. As he helped his father manage the plantation, Coles had taken advantage of Monroe's offer of his library to continue his studies. It was during his visits there that the two men engaged in extended conversations about politics and society and Coles' plans for the future. When they met on the road, Coles shared news of the president's offer and his intentions to decline it and Monroe urged him to reconsider. In addition to giving him valuable experience in the seat of the national government, Monroe asserted that it would allow him to, quote, associate with non-slaveholding people and form acquaintances with members of Congress from the Old Northwest. These connections would give him a leg up when he decided to make the move. It was thus with this incentive and motivation that Edward Coles found himself as the private secretary to the president delivering Madison's second annual message to Congress on December 5, 1810. Madison had a couple of other positions to fill in 1810 and had a bit of trouble with both of them. The first was caused by the untimely demise of Meriwether Lewis in October 1809, as discussed in episode 4.8. The Louisiana Territory, being arguably the most distant of the U.S. territories, required a trusted hand to manage its affairs. Thus, over a month after Lewis's death, President Madison wrote to his predecessor, Thomas Jefferson, about a report that he had received that their mutual friend, James Monroe, was interested in the post as territorial governor. Now, Madison and Monroe have been somewhat estranged since the 1808 election, where our old friend, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, and some of his colleagues had attempted to pit Monroe up against Jefferson's chosen successor, Madison, for the presidency. Monroe had, of course, come out the loser in that matchup, and a rift in their friendship had resulted. Thus, Madison asked Jefferson if he would talk to Monroe about whether he was interested. Jefferson wrote back a few days later that, though he had pushed Monroe to accept as, quote, a signal of reconciliation on which the body of Republicans would again rally to him, Monroe had not been keen on the idea. Instead, as Jefferson recounted to the president, quote, the sum of his answers was that to accept of that office was incompatible with the respect he owed himself, that he would never act in any office where he should be subordinate to anybody but the president himself, or which that did not place his responsibility substantially with the president and the nation, that at your accession to the chair, he would have accepted a place in the cabinet and would have exerted his endeavors most faithfully in support of your fame and measures. Though it was good news that there was no more bad blood on Monroe's part, this meant 
that Madison still had a position to fill. The acting territorial governor, Frederick Bates, suggested a man named John Coburn, but it seems that the president ignored that suggestion and instead offered the post to someone named Graham, who may have been State Department clerk John Graham, though I haven't been able to confirm that. Regardless, Graham declined the offer, so on February 8, 1810, Representative John Wales Epps, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, and a Jefferson connection by his marriage to Jefferson's late daughter Maria, sent the president a name to consider, Representative Benjamin Howard of Kentucky. Wales insisted that appointing Howard, who had served under General Mad Anthony Wayne in the conflict in the Old Northwest in the 1790s, would be, quote, peculiarly well-calculated for a station where military as well as civil talents may be important. Madison took Epps' advice, and on April 10, 1810, Howard resigned from the U.S. House to assume the role of governor of the Louisiana Territory. Madison had a few months' break of trying to find someone to fill a vacant post, at least, but this break ended on September 13, 1810, when Supreme Court Associate Justice William Cushing passed away. The 78-year-old Cushing had been on the court since being appointed by President George Washington in September 1789. That's right, he had a 21-year-long tenure and was the last of Washington's original court appointees still on the court at the time. If you'll recall, it wasn't until the tail end of Jefferson's first term that he had an opportunity to appoint a new justice to the Supreme Court, so Madison had a golden opportunity early on to continue to shift the ideological nature of the court as Jefferson had tried to do with his three appointees. A few weeks after Cushing's passing, a letter arrived from a former cabinet colleague with a suggestion. Levi Lincoln had served as attorney general during Jefferson's first term, and, as we discussed in Lincoln's episode in the Seat at the Table special series, was a trusted advisor and confidant. On October 6th, Lincoln wrote to the president, reminding him of a past suggestion of Barnabas Bidwell, who had served up until recently as Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and, as discussed in episode 3.31, served at one point as the Jefferson administration spokesman in the U.S. House of Representatives. Madison replied to Lincoln on the 20th, asserting that, quote, I feel all the importance of filling the vacancy with a character particularly acceptable to the northern portion of our country and as generally so as possible to the whole of it. With that said, the president revealed that he had another candidate in mind for the position, Levi Lincoln himself. Quote, I turn my thoughts and hopes to the addition of your learning, principles, and weight to a department which has so much influence on the course and success of our political system. I cannot allow myself to despond of this solid advantage to the public. He knew that Lincoln would use his health, specifically his increasingly poor eyesight, as an excuse to decline the nomination, but Madison was ready for that argument. Quote, I'm not unaware of the infirmity which is said to afflict your eyes, but these are not the organs most employed in the functions of a judge, and I would willingly trust that the malady which did not unfit you for your late high and important station may not be such as to induce a refusal of services which your patriotism will, I'm sure, be disposed to yield. Madison was making a hard pitch, and Lincoln took over a month to carefully consider the offer. Ultimately, though, on November 27th, he wrote the president that, quote, my increasing years and difficulty of sight 
admonish me in a tone which can neither be mistaken or silenced of the propriety of confining my future action to the narrow limits of private life. That was it. Thanks, but no thanks. Right? You can imagine Lincoln's surprise, then, when a note from Madison arrived at the beginning of January informing him that the president had gone ahead and submitted Lincoln's name to the Senate anyway for appointment to Cushing's former seat on the court. The Senate promptly confirmed Lincoln's appointment the next day. There was just one problem. Lincoln had said no a month or so prior, and on January 20th, he wrote to the president again to assert that, while he wished he could accede to the wishes of Madison, as well as his own friends who were urging him to take the seat on the court, he really was suffering from pretty serious health issues. Lincoln wrote that, quote, If my situation would permit the discharging the duties of a judge, I would hold the office at least for one or two years until, by looking around, you should be enabled to make a more permanent and satisfactory appointment. Instead of just appointing someone, then having to go through the whole rigmarole again a year or two down the line, why not just appoint someone now who could serve on a long-term basis? Makes sense. That shouldn't be too hard to do, right? While still waiting to hear back from Lincoln, Madison received a letter from another alumni of the Jefferson cabinet, former Secretary of War Henry Dearborn. Dearborn, from his experience in New England and familiarity with the courts in the region, asserted that the Supreme Court seat should be filled by, quote, a sound, strong, and independent character, and suggested either Postmaster General Gideon Granger or Alexander Walcott as, quote, acceptable to the friends of the government in this vicinity. Though I don't have a definitive source for this, so please, grains of salt at the ready, I imagine that due to both Granger's controversial involvement in the Yazoo affair, still a hot potato topic in Washington at the time, as discussed in episode 4.10, as well as the likely encouragement of Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, who was the cabinet member most familiar with the other choice, Madison opted to nominate Alexander Walcott to the post on February 4th, 1811. Gallatin would have been familiar with Walcott as he was the collector of the port of Middletown, Connecticut at the time. Walcott started his career in the law, having established a law practice first in Windsor, Connecticut, then moving across the border to Springfield, Massachusetts, before returning to Connecticut, where he became a prominent leader of the local Democratic-Republican Party. One likely reason that Walcott was rewarded with such a leapfrog nomination to the highest court of the land is that he was a staunch and active supporter of the Jefferson administration's efforts to enforce the Embargo Act at the end of Jefferson's term. This, however, meant that he was well-known to Federalists in the Senate, who immediately attacked the nomination and dismissed Walcott, quote, as a man of mediocre legal talent. Historian Robert Ireland asserts that it seems that there may have been some truth to the allegations of him not being a lawyer of the highest caliber, and that, quote, even Republicans found it difficult to defend Walcott. Now, Walcott did earn high praise from Levi Lincoln on February 15th in a letter to Madison in which Lincoln dismisses the criticism of the nomination as being politically motivated and remarked that, quote, For years I have been acquainted with Mr. Walcott and have met with few men of firmer mind, of greater perceptive and discriminating powers, of more steady and uniform adherence to the principles of the Union and the arrangements of the general government. His literary acquisitions are known to many of our friends at Washington. 
Lincoln's defense of Walcott does wane a bit when he admits that, quote, of his professional merits and standing as a lawyer, I'm unacquainted. But he quickly comes back and asserts that, quote, his pride, patriotism, and sense of duty will be pledges of his exertion. By the time Lincoln wrote this letter, though, Walcott's nomination had already been rejected by the Senate by a vote of 9-4 to 24 against. That's right. Some Democratic Republicans had crossed the aisle and joined the Federalists in shooting down the nomination. Now, I will say here that Lincoln may not have been far off the mark in that the Democratic Republicans who opposed the nomination were politically motivated, as the Madison administration was at the time engaged in another battle with the Senate that we'll go into more detail about in just a moment. But for now, let's continue the journey of Madison's woes at trying to fill the vacant Supreme Court seat. At this point, the president's first choice had declined the nomination, and the second had been rejected by the Senate. And yes, for those of you keeping track, this was only the second time the Senate had rejected an appointment to the Supreme Court, the first being John Rutledge's appointment as Chief Justice way back in 1795, or episode 1.30 in our narrative. This was not good. Madison had to find someone to fill the vacancy on the court who the Senate would not reject, and one name came to mind. Yet another person who Madison had appointed to a post after another candidate had been rejected by the Senate. None other than U.S. Minister to Russia, John Quincy Adams. New England supporters of the administration all agreed that Adams, known for being, quote, honest, able, and independent, was the perfect choice. On February 21, 1811, Madison sent Adams' name to the Senate, and his nomination was promptly confirmed. Surely, being the public servant that he was, Adams would agree to return from St. Petersburg and take his seat on the Supreme Court. With that matter seemingly settled, Madison could turn his mind to other matters. And boy, howdy, were there other matters to consider. If you recall from way back in episode 1.8, the Bank of the United States, which then Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton had crafted, was given a 20-year charter in 1791. This meant that in 1811, President James Madison and his administration had to decide what to do about the Bank of the United States. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison had been leaders in the opposition to the bank during the initial debate in the 1790s, but that had been 20 years prior and before both men had served as President of the United States. Further, both had been influenced by the arguments of Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin, who was a proponent of the bank. On numerous occasions over the years, Gallatin had stepped in to defend the bank against Democratic-Republican attacks. Thus, naturally, Gallatin recommended for the administration to push for the bank's recharter. He likely would have been in full agreement with this assertion by historian Eric Lomazoff that, quote, the bank operated essentially from birth as an integral but independent auxiliary of the federal government. The thing is, the bank was serving the nation's interests in an unexpected way. As noted by Lomazoff, quote, what surprised legislators, not to mention many of their constituents, was the bank's slow but real emergence in the mid-1790s as an institution with monetary power, the capacity to control the community's stock of money. Basically, at this point, money as we think of it nowadays came in two forms. Specie, which was hard currency, be it gold or silver, though the latter was more prevalent, and scrip, 
which was what we now know of as paper currency. Specie was typically in the form of coins issued by the government, while scrip was offered by banks. Now, when the Bank of the United States was chartered, banking in the nation was in its infancy. While banking in Europe had started in the private sector and evolved into a function sanctioned by an official institution, primarily in the United States, the industry started up as banks chartered by a governmental entity, be it state or national, which is understandable considering the lack of disposable capital in the U.S. at the time. As noted by historian Donald Adams Jr., quote, the earliest banks tended to serve the needs of the commercial classes at the expense of the farmer or manufacturer. While the Bank of the United States was begun within that vein, what allowed it to serve as a controlling mechanism for the nation's monetary supply is that it came into the market as a big fish in a small pond. At the beginning of 1792, quote, only five out of the 14 states had chartered a single bank within their borders. Given the limited amount of specie in the U.S., the National Bank had to accept scrip from other banks, which, when they were ready, could be presented to the issuing bank for the specie equivalent of the note. The National Bank, upon its start, had a much larger operating capital than any of the other U.S. banks, which afforded it an opportunity to hold on to the scrip when it would drain the reserves of the other bank too much, or, conversely, present the script in order to drain the reserves and thus limit the amount of loans that the other bank could issue. Again, as noted by Lomazov, quote, while the Bank of the United States was routinely capable of redeeming state banknotes, thus draining those institutions of their specie reserves and effectively forcing reductions in their lending, it was not free to do so arbitrarily. Politically, an institution with a time-limited federal charter could not afford to needlessly antagonize state banks. Still, it did help to ensure the stability of the banking industry and, by extension, the American economy. Madison was ultimately convinced by Gallatin's arguments, but both men knew that they would have a fight on their hands and that their chief opponent would be Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland. Historian Robert Rutland attributes Smith's opposition to recharter being solely to embarrass Madison and his administration. But Smith's buyer for Frank Castle brings another reason into the mix. While admitting that Smith, as a merchant, realized as much as any merchant did the importance of banks to his business, as Castle explains, quote, Smith's connections with several local state chartered banks in Baltimore, in part, explain his attitude. Personal interests dictated that he be jealous of the Bank of the United States and its branch office in Baltimore, which competed with the institutions he was associated with. Though in early 1810, Smith had proposed and agreed to grant the bank an extension of its original charter until 1812 in order to give the Senate more time to consider the question of recharter, that summer, the Baltimore branch of the Bank of the United States, as described by Castle, quote, purposefully caused an economic recession by tightening credit and withdrawing funds it normally kept on deposit with state banks. This action infuriated Smith, as he thought it was underhanded strong-arming to try to force Congress to grant the recharter, and it only further solidified in his mind the danger that the National Bank posed. Smith appealed to President Madison to bring the branch to task by withdrawing all federal deposits from the Baltimore Bank branch and shift them over to local banks. Considering the bad blood between them by this point, however, 
and all that Smith had done to thwart administration policy, Madison was not inclined to act on Smith's suggestion. By the time Congress came back into session at the end of the year, William Duane, the editor of the Philadelphia Aurora and an ally of Smith and his faction, had, quote, published a broadside attack on the bank. Joining him with filling printed pages with attacks on the bank was Thomas Ritchie, the editor of the Richmond Inquirer. Armed with arguments, numerous Democratic-Republican congressional leaders came back to Washington, determined to end Hamilton's bank once and for all. Now, I won't go into too much detail about the debate in Congress over the issue, except to share the following note from Lomazoff. Quote, Two things appear to have united those who offered floor speeches in the 1811 congressional debate. First, nearly everyone proved willing to discuss the constitutional question. Only a handful of substantive addresses failed to touch on the subject. Second, no one said anything new on the question. The primary difference in this debate was that, rather than being a debate between Federalists and Democratic Republicans, the Federalist majority in Congress found themselves joined by moderate Democratic Republicans who, quote, argued that to whatever extent the constitutional door remained ajar in the early 1800s, it was effectively shut by legislative and executive action that tacitly acknowledged the National Bank's constitutionality. The question remained just which side would have enough votes to win the day. The first test came in the House, where a recharter bill was introduced in January 1811. Gallatin worked with bank lobbyists to try to convince congressmen to support recharter. However hard Gallatin worked, though, there was one important player missing from the effort to swing votes in support of the bank. President Madison had changed his mind on the issue, but he calculated that it would weaken him politically if he came out publicly in support of recharter which he could have done with a special message to Congress. This message never came. And as far as we can tell, Madison did nothing to work towards recharter as Congress debated, though it seems that there were rumors that Madison had indeed changed his mind on the issue. With no support coming from the president, proponents of recharter in the House could not gather enough votes to pass their recharter bill, though it was only defeated by a one-vote margin. So all attention turned to the Senate, which, if it voted for a recharter bill, could give the proposal enough traction to win votes in the House. Proponents of the plan in that legislative body, however, were beginning the fight with some factors working against them. In the 19th century, as senators were elected by state legislatures, those state legislatures felt at times that they could send instructions to the senator they elected on important legislation being considered by the U.S. Senate. While there was little that they could do until the senator's term was over, these instructions were a warning to the senator that if they didn't vote as the legislature wanted, they may not re-elect him when that time came. Thus, the states of Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia sent instructions to their respective senators to vote against rechartering the Bank of the United States. This meant that there were already potentially 10 votes against recharter, and in a body of 34 senators, that was a sizable portion. Indeed, one of those senators who had been instructed to vote against the bank's recharter took the responsibility quite seriously, and, despite being one of the newest senators, stood on February 15th to deliver a speech. This senator is someone that we are going to get well acquainted with 
from this point on, a senator from the state of Kentucky by the name of Henry Clay. Like Senator Smith, Clay, quote, had ties to at least two Kentucky banks and had sat on one's board of directors, and thus had his own personal reasons to oppose recharter. Clay attacked the bank on the traditional argument that it was not a necessary institution and thus did not satisfy the qualifications of the necessary and proper clause that Hamilton and other bank proponents had argued as granting the government the constitutional authority to establish the bank in the first place. For those who are familiar with Clay's later career, you can imagine that this speech would come back to bite him in the future. For now, though, Clay was firmly established in the anti-recharter crowd. The next day, the Senate would hear from one of the leaders of this group. On February 16th, Senator Samuel Smith stood to address the Senate. Though Smith had proposed a recharter bill in 1810, which he felt, quote, eliminated most of the bank's controversial features without impairing its ability to function, Smith was firmly against the recharter bill currently before the Senate and brought up charges that he had made in the past that the bank was controlled by foreigners, chiefly British citizens, quote, and that the bank was partial in its loan policies to Federalists. He also used the opportunity to argue against, quote, the necessity of branch banks. Not only had the branch banks done incalculable injury, but also, he asserted, no one had yet demonstrated that they performed any vital function. He also didn't let the opportunity go to waste to criticize Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, quote, for using his official position to support the recharter legislation. A few days later, on February 20th, the bill came up for a vote. The final tally was 17-4 to 17 against. That's right. It was a tie, which meant that one of the few constitutional powers granted to the vice president came into play. It was up to Vice President George Clinton of New York to decide the fate of the bill. Though a Democratic Republican through and through, Clinton's being from New York had offered him a rather unique take on the Bank of the United States during the initial charter debate in the 1790s. As noted by Clinton biographer John Kaminsky, describing then-Governor of New York George Clinton's position, quote, To a great extent, Clinton's economic and fiscal pragmatism at the state level anticipated Hamilton's plans on the federal level. Although Clinton objected to the political ramifications of Hamilton's program, the governor had few reservations about the economics behind it. What he intended was for New York to benefit from such a plan. And benefit it had. However, that had been in the 1790s, and much had transpired since then. As discussed in episode 3.38, Clinton and his supporters had tried to push the vice president forward as the Democratic-Republican's presidential candidate in 1808. But given the fact that it was clearly known that President Jefferson wanted his secretary of state to succeed him, Clinton was relegated to the bottom of the ticket once more. Clinton was rather bitter at the snub, but since beginning his second term as vice president, personal matters had kept him from organizing much of an opposition to the president. As noted by Kaminsky, During the past few years, quote, he, i.e. Clinton, was troubled with various ailments that caused his periodical absence from the Senate. The death in 1810 of his daughter Cornelia, who was very dear to him, was a severe blow. Finally, though, on February 20th, 1811, 
Clinton had his chance to stick it to Madison and his administration. Clinton announced that he was casting his vote against the recharter bill and began to read from a speech that had been drafted by Senator Henry Clay. Clinton asserted that, in his opinion, quote, the power to create a corporation was not expressly granted by the Constitution and should not be assumed by implication. If the bank proponents felt that the federal government should have such a power, quote, the Constitution happily furnishes the means for remedying the evil by amendment. He then concluded by stating that, quote, in the course of a long life, I have found that government is not to be strengthened by an assumption of doubtful powers, but by a wise and energetic execution of those which are incontestable. The former never fails to produce suspicion and distrust, while the latter inspires respect and confidence. With that, Vice President Clinton sat down, knowing that he had delivered a heavy blow to the administration and, in particular, the Secretary of the Treasury. The defeat of the bank recharter put Gallatin in a very difficult position. Not only had the bill that he had lobbied for and insisted was essential to Treasury operations been defeated, but one of the key leaders in the effort to defeat the bill had been the brother of Gallatin's rival in the cabinet, Secretary of State Robert Smith. The situation was simply untenable. In early March, Gallatin wrote to the president, While the original letter has been lost, a draft contains the following, Quote, I have long and seriously reflected on the present state of things and on my personal situation. This has for some time been sufficiently unpleasant and nothing but a sense of public duty and attachment to yourself could have induced me to retain it to this day. But I'm convinced that in neither respect can I be any longer useful under existing circumstances. Now, it doesn't seem that Gallatin had his heart set on resigning, as he told the president, quote, that he would remain if certain conditions were met. But something had to give. Gallatin described the administration as, quote, defective, and the effects already sensibly felt became every day more extensive and fatal. What was the cause of the administration's deficiency? Quote, growing subdivisions and personal factions. Gallatin asserted that, quote, such a state of things cannot last. A radical remedy had become absolutely necessary. If it meant that Gallatin would stay, Madison was willing to apply, quote unquote, a radical remedy to the situation. So he rejected Gallatin's resignation and instead asked him to be a part of the solution. Remember earlier in this episode, when Jefferson had that conversation with James Monroe, and Monroe had said, quote, that he would never act in any office where he should be subordinate to anybody but the president himself, and would have accepted a place in the cabinet. It turns out that in March 1811, Madison was ready to take him up on that offer. By that point, James Monroe had managed to secure his election as governor of Virginia, This had come after working for the year prior to reconcile with Madison and his supporters. In May 1810, he had visited Washington, D.C. and met with the president as well as leading administration officials. 
He also drafted a letter on September 10, 1810, intended to be circulated among party leaders in Richmond, aimed at, quote, detaching himself from the old Republicans, i.e. Representative John Randolph of Roanoke and his supporters, without specifically condemning their principles. Though Randolph branded Monroe a traitor, on January 16, 1811, Monroe was chosen as governor. Only two months later, on March 14th, he arrived in Richmond after a return home to Albemarle to discover a letter from Senator Richard Brent, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, waiting for him. Gallatin had asked Brent to reach out to Monroe to gauge his interest about the post of Secretary of State. While Monroe was certainly interested, he was also concerned about the optics of leaving office as governor just two months in. He was also concerned that he and Madison might not see eye to eye when it came to foreign policy. On March 20th, Madison wrote a private and confidential letter to Monroe directly offering him the post. Though if Monroe did not feel that he could leave the governorship at that point and had to decline, quote, this communication will, I'm sure, be viewed in the light to which its motives entitle it and may rest in confidence between us. By this point, Monroe had consulted with other Virginia Democratic-Republican leaders who had urged him to accept Madison's offer, as there was much to be gained from this act of reconciliation between the two. Thus, on March 23rd, Monroe replied that, quote, I have no hesitation in saying that I have every disposition to accept your invitation to enter into the Department of State. But, in deciding this question, on your part as well as on mine, some considerations occur which claim attention from us both and which candor requires to be brought into view and weighed at this time. My views of policy towards the European powers are not unknown. They were adopted on great consideration and are founded in the utmost devotion to the public welfare. If I come into the government, my object will be to render to my country and to you all the service in my power according to the light, such as it is, of my knowledge and experience, faithfully and without reserve. It would not become me to accept a station and to act a part in it, which my judgment and conscience did not approve, and which I did not believe would promote the public welfare and happiness. I could not do this, nor would you wish me to do it. Madison responded on the 26th that he didn't anticipate any problems with Monroe, quote, carrying into office a just respect for his own principles, and above all, for the dictates of his conscience, told him his commission would be dated for April 1st and asked him to be in Washington a day or so after. Now that Monroe was on board, all that remained was to wrap up things with the current Secretary of State, Robert Smith. That, however, would prove to be a tougher sell. On the same day that Madison wrote the private and confidential letter to Monroe directly offering him the post at state, Madison summoned Smith to the president's house. The only account that we have of this meeting on March 20th comes from Madison and was drafted two weeks after the fact, so we have to take this with a grain of salt. The president recalled that he confronted Smith about attacking administration decisions in public while agreeing to those decisions behind closed doors with the cabinet. Madison charged him with quote-unquote unfriendly conduct towards him. Smith naturally defended himself, saying, quote, that he had been always personally Madison's friend and had contributed as far as he could to the credit and support of the administration. 
Madison wasn't done with his accusations, however. He charged the Secretary of State with, quote, passing on certain cabinet secrets of a confidential nature and implying that he had shared insider information about the administration with his brother and Madison critic, Senator Samuel Smith. Madison went further and critiqued Smith's work, saying that his correspondence was, quote, crude and inadequate and required an inordinate amount of Madison's time and effort to clean up his work and to attend to matters that the secretary should have handled. Madison then asked for Smith's resignation and, in an effort to ensure a smooth exit, offered him the position of U.S. Minister to Russia since, by this point, word was on its way to John Quincy Adams of his appointment to the Supreme Court. At this point, though, it was known that William Pinckney was vacating his post as U.S. Minister to Britain, and Smith expressed his preference for the diplomatic mission to London. He also mentioned that he would be interested in an appointment to the Supreme Court once another vacancy came up, which was expected quite soon since Justice Samuel Chase was in poor health. Madison, however, had another candidate in mind for London and pushed Smith to accept the post in St. Petersburg, asserting that, quote, the services there, though neither difficult nor laborious, might be important, that the station was respectable, and that it was desirable to find a minister whose political grade here had been such as would satisfy the expectations of the emperor. Smith finally agreed, and Madison put forward the April 1st date for the official resignation. The next day, the news was mentioned in a brief blurb in the National Intelligencer that Smith would assume the role of U.S. Minister to Russia. Well, that went easier than expected, Madison likely thought. If, of course, that's how things went. However, if you've ever been in that position where you got bad news that you weren't expecting and initially just accepted it, but then it started sinking in as soon as you left, then you'll know exactly how Robert Smith felt. Not only had he been insulted by the president and asked to resign from his lucrative post that potentially put him in line for the presidency, but Smith was also being shuffled off to the most distant diplomatic posting within the purview of the chief executive to offer. It was akin to a political banishment, and the supposed face-saving measure would not stop wagging tongues from gossiping about why Smith had been so abruptly dismissed from the administration. The more he thought about it, the matter Smith got, to the point of writing to his brother on March 22nd that he and his wife would not attend a dinner that was to be given in their honor at the president's house. He also intended to turn in his commission as Secretary of State on the 1st without the customary flowery letter of thanks. Let silence speak loud to that, as well as the offer for the Russian mission. Smith was boosted, quote, by the compliments of esteem and good wishes that he and his wife received. Men and women with whom they had been associated lamented their departure. While figuring out a political comeback, Smith had to consider his immediate future. He didn't desire to return to practicing law and mentioned to his brother and friends about the possibility of becoming president of the Maryland Insurance Company should that position become available. As the days ticked on, Smith, while trying to put together a plan to make ends meet in the meantime, also began to plot against Madison. He wrote to his brother that he planned to publish his side of the story and that, quote, having formed my determination, I will make at this time no compromise with him, i.e. Madison. His overthrow is my object, and most assuredly will I effect it. On April 1st, 
President Madison waited at the president's house with a commission for Smith as U.S. minister to Russia. He waited and waited and waited. No Smith. He finally sent the outgoing Secretary of State a summons. Smith arrived and said that he had been just about set out to return his commission when the messenger arrived with Madison's summons. When the president brought up the matter of the mission to St. Petersburg, Smith, quote, informed him that he was declining the offer to become minister to Russia. Even if he had been inclined to accept the position, he could not do so when it would appear to others as simply an expedient to get rid of him as Secretary of State. With that, Robert Smith, who had served Jefferson as Secretary of the Navy and Madison as Secretary of State, left his cabinet career behind, firmly committed to politically taking down the President of the United States. We'll have to see how Smith's crusade goes, but I'd actually like to end this episode with the arrival of his successor at the State Department. James Monroe was first mentioned in the podcast narrative in episode 1.6, and through the course of four administrations, we've seen his political fortunes rise and fall. On April 1st, as he rode into Washington, D.C., one can only imagine his thoughts. Was he noting, as described by Monroe biographer Harry Ammon, the, quote, unpaved streets, unfinished buildings, vast swamps stretching along the Potomac, garbage dumped in the streets for roving pigs to scavenge, the city of magnificent distances that was more like a frontier community than a major population center on the eastern coast? Was his mind on the task that awaited him to help sort out the administration's foreign policy messes with Britain, France, and Spain? Or was he thinking about the fact that the next day, he would be elevated to the post that John Marshall and James Madison had proved could serve to be the right-hand man of the president and that could propel its holder on to higher office and greatness? One thing is for certain. As James Madison rode into the nation's capital that day, his life and American history would never be the same again. With that, let's wrap up this episode, shall we? First, Thanks so much again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. I also want to thank Christian for his audio editing work on this episode. Editing is one of those necessary tasks of podcasting, but with so much work to do with researching, writing, recording, and promoting, my time is limited. Knowing that Christian is working his magic on the audio is a relief and allows me to devote my energies to making the other aspects of the podcast come together, knowing that the audio will be on point for all of you. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast or next audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, all one word, dot com. I'd also like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I've seen on their social media that they've been making appearances at various historic sites in Virginia, so be sure to follow them to learn more. I have a link for them on my website, which is Presidency's podcast, all one word, dot com. There, you can also find the sources used for this episode, as well as past episodes of the podcast, resources to learn more about all the presidents, and information on how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support the work of presidencies. With that said, I'd like to thank my newest patron, Michelle. The contributions of Michelle and my other patrons are what allow me to enlist the audio editing support of Christian as well as other resources 
both technological and source-wise, which make presidencies what it is. So I cannot thank them all enough. If you'd like to support presidencies as a patron, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. Speaking of support, I also wanted to do a shout out to a succinct and much appreciated five-star review left recently. M.E. Vaugh 2, who I'm pretty sure I know, and if so, I can confirm is a delightful and wonderful person, but I'm sure regardless is such, left a review titled, So Good, and that remarks that Presidencies is, quote, one of my favorite podcasts. Thanks so much for that shout out, and thanks to all of you who have left a rating and review. Increasingly, more podcast apps are providing an opportunity to leave ratings and reviews. Whether you're listening through Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any of the other multitude of forums where you can leave feedback, I hope you'll take a moment to do so, as it really does help to get the word out there about the podcast. With all that said, I'd like to send my final thanks out to you, dear listener. This journey through presidential history is made all the richer for having you here on it with me. I hope you'll join me next time when we discuss the Little Belt Fair and the Battle of Tippecanoe in an episode I'd like to call We're Not Going to Take It Anymore. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.